My name's Mia and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Christina Hopka. My pronouns are they, them and theirs. And I'm a proud queer non-binary intersectional feminist and abolitionist. And today's podcast, we're going to expand on the idea of gender and the way it relates to 16 days of activism against violence towards women. And what a wonderful way to start. These gender pronouns may sound new to a lot of people. And I'm going to say it's it's quite often a generational thing. So, for example, where I called mum the other day and she had met these young people who didn't describe themselves as she, her, he, him pronouns the way that she would expect. But I didn't really know how to explain it to her in a way that she would understand. So what's a good way to explain it to your mum or your dad, for example? I think, look, first and foremost, we've always been around. So, for example... One of the cultures I come from, uh, we had six genders in the third century and there's particularly, you know, so many First Nations cultures across the world that have been around since time immemorial that have had, you know, continue to have third, fourth, fifth gender spaces. So we hit a point of visibility, particularly in our local societies here in so-called Australia where all of a sudden pronouns just emerged into the mainstream. So if you're having a convo with your folks about pronouns, I think as an adult kid you'd know your folks better than anyone. Um, But my humble advice would be just to start off on the strong foot with people and just let them know, hey, it doesn't need to make sense for you right now. Here's where you can go and self-educate. But always express the importance of pronouns for people are non-negotiables and if you ever get confused just always refer to people how they refer to themselves. Mm. And a good way to open the conversation is to introduce your own pronouns to the absolutely, person. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. and this is so important for everyone. You know when cis people uh, say what their pronouns are whether it's meeting new people or meetings at work similarly it's taking some of the weight and the load off transgender diverse non-binary folks that might be in that room or may not be in that room in regards to us always having to kind of say our pronouns and stick out um, and cisgendered, of course, means that you're, you identify with the sex that you were born with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you could be um, born as intersex. So you might have genitalia that matches whatever we ascribe as male or female. Mm. But obviously, you know, for intersex folks as well, they can be born with naturally occurring variations and, um, mm-hmm. you know, who we are on the gender spectrum and when I say spectrum I think of almost like a huge infinite 3D spherical circle where people can be plotted on any point. Mm, Yeah so there's a 16 days of activism coming up and um, most people understand that uh, most gender-based violence is inflicted on women and girls by mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been calls to update the meaning of gender-based violence to be more inclusive of yes. people um, who may not present as cisgendered women. Can you talk more about that? With absolute pleasure, Mia. <laughs> so, look, I think, you know, particularly with white feminism in this particular country that completely, you know, attempted to invisibilise and disregard the voices of black women – I think that white feminism in its multiple waves here in so-called Australia, you know, had a lot of incredible things that indeed I do honour. I do honour on the journey of feminism and where that has kind of led us to to 2022. However, um, I am probably mostly a detractor of white feminism because as with so many waves of feminism that we've seen 
across the world and particularly here, scarcity politics have been built in because if we give black women their rights, it's going to be, you know, in the too hard basket. Mm-hmm. Let's just fight for our rights because we've got proximity to white men, yeah, mm-hmm. and let's just only wholly and so- solely focus on white woman advancement. Mm. And when I say white woman advancement, oftentimes these are middle to upper class white women as well. Mm. And so where that leaves us is in the modern day is some incredible activist organisations that have now become corporatized. Mm-hmm. We have a sector that's exploded out of the Royal Commission into Family Violence that can no longer really find people on the ground to do the work. And so when we talk about gender-based violence, when we talk about 16 days of activism, of course within the kind of structuring of this there's going to be in a way a very normative view in mind. Mm. So, you know, when we say gender-based violence, we're talking about um, cishet men against cishet women. I never want to minimise that. In fact, I I honour that. I honour the 50-plus years of activism that brought family violence sector and brought these conversations to light. But what I reject and what I critique is where was the lifting as they climbed? And I think right here and now, and when we look back at you know, so many greats whose shoulders I stand on. Something as as simple as a term called gender-based violence in fact does harm because what it does is it says violence is gendered, violence can only look this way and this is what we're going to visibilise and put power behind because this is the way the dominant or the dominator culture can make sense of a subject because we know people, yes, choose to do violence but the society around them enables drivers for that and when we don't, when we lay all the blame at the individual's feet without placing them in society, really we're only speaking incomplete pictures. Mm. So the incomplete picture at the moment is when we say gender-based violence, we are talking about a very important dynamic of violence that exists out there, a prolific dynamic of violence that sits out there. But we also need to talk about LGBTIQASB plus mm-hmm. violence in our communities. We have higher rates of intimate partner and family violence in our communities. Um, and I would very warmly invite people, you know, to review Private Lives 3, writing themselves in for pride and prevention. And so, you know, not only were these academics, this was done by community, mostly by community, definitely for community and what was mostly became very robust co-design, um, you know, to speak about and to bring to light the incredible issues of family violence in our communities, particularly for trans women, particularly for non-binary people, particularly for bisexual and multi-gender attracted women. Are we going to start really speaking in complete pictures, speaking about violence in rainbow relationships, speaking about the prolific violence from white cishet men towards black cishet women in their communities and what it looks like for black cishet women when she resists him Um, or uses resistant violence and when the police attend, what that then looks like for her. We don't talk enough about people with disabilities who are surviving or resisting family violence or even enacting. We don't talk enough about um, family violence in families of origin, let alone chosen families. And so I think when we talk about enactments of harm and particularly as a queer intersectional and abolitionist, I'm going to put layers and lenses on that. And it's not going to be simple. It's not going to be men, men hurts woman. And then we're going to, you know, have 16 days to talk about how man hurts woman. Mm-hmm. How about we have 16 days to talk about ending violence across the world full stop? Yeah. Yeah. And just a quick vocabulary check. 
cishet is short for cisgendered heteronormative. Heterosexual. Heterosexual. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Could also be heteronormative. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Heterosexuality is valid. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, many trans people are heterosexual, so let me let me not be shady. Is it that the drivers of violence is the hierarchy? There's always someone mm-hmm. on top who is exploiting their higher status mm-hmm. to enact harm on another person. Absolutely. And, and it doesn't have to, just no. doesn't have to be that man woman relationship. Exactly. Intersections. Exactly. Women and women aren't this monolith. Yes. There are many different variations. Indeed. Yeah. When we talk about the oppressor, yeah, that Mm. is the biggest driver of Mm. why we do harm to each other in our societies. And so, you know, one must wonder if we could eat, if all of us could have shelter, if all of us could have love, if all of us could feel belonging. Mm -hmm. I would dare say, I don't know, maybe the, the incredible rates of family violence wouldn't be what they are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, off the top of your head, the or the, just the rates of violence towards trans people. Yeah, the rates of violence are incredibly high. For example, I remember in Private Lives Three, it was looking at instances of violence over a twelve-month period within trans communities, and what I remember is those numbers were higher than numbers within our own communities, and certainly higher than, for example, violence experienced by cishet women. It's very evident that particularly trans folks, particularly trans women, cop it. You know, the fetishization that can happen, we see this a lot with bi and bi plus women as well. And then the person that's attracted to them, either acting on that in a healthy or unhealthy way, and then the feelings that can come afterwards where they then will take those feelings out on the trans woman or the trans person around them, perhaps as a as a knee-jerk reaction to internalized xyz so what that sounds like is a man a cisgendered man in a relationship with a trans woman feels his masculinity is threatened by his own attraction he feels shame Mm -hmm. and so he takes that out on the trans woman by being violent towards her absolutely tools of harm tend to look quite similar when we look at for example cishet relationships Mm -hmm. yeah you have rainbow relationships or relationships where people are marginalised from the dominated culture, there's other tools of harm that people can use. And so often we find with trans women or trans folks, the tools of harm can be, you know, denying access to gender-affirming hormones or or it could be really pushing someone into that. Mm. Um, There's all these really interesting ways in which harm can occur when you're marginalised, even towards each other in your own communities because Mm -hmm. we know sometimes hurting each other feels easier than understanding and accepting the enormity of the harm that our oppressor is causing. Yeah, they call that internalised... Homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, intersexism, you name it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that because you internalise the abuser as well. You can. Yeah, and it's easier to become that than it is to identify as a victim. Mm -hmm. So you you project that harm onto other people even though you're being a hypocrite because you're also a woman or you're also, yeah, on the gender diverse spectrum and so forth. Absolutely, and I think this is why it's so important. Anyone and everyone can choose to do harm. Mm. Well, we were talking earlier about visibility. Mm. We all know one woman gets murdered every week in Australia, but we automatically assume it's a white lady. Yes. Why do we not really hear about trans women and women of colour? Yeah. When trans folks are murdered, 
we oftentimes, particularly in this country, the process of that will often look like them being dead named and them being dead named. Yes. So yes. referring to their uh, their name given at birth. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So often they're dead named and for want of a better word, processed as the person that they were not. And so it's really mm. difficult for us to get those statistics. And so this can be another source of harm, not only for that person when they're resting. Mm. but also for the people around them who love them um, and who, you know, want their legacy to continue. I also think on this conversation that we rarely speak about newly arrived and refugee folks that have been killed in the context of their intimate relationships and we, of course, refuse to acknowledge or talk about black women and children in particular murdered in this country. A lot of these murders, as we know, happen in custody and with police and, of course, that's the colonial project um, working, being built the way it was meant to be built. But then what we see is black woman and black child go missing or die horrifically and nothing reaches the media. There's no outpouring, there's no outcry, there's no mm. visuals, there's no anything. But I think for, you know, black women in particular, statistically speaking, it's white fellas that are killing her. Mm-hmm. It's white fellas that are harming her. It's white fellas that are killing their babies. Black woman may not call police. If she does call police, you know, oftentimes she can be arrested herself. Oftentimes she can be taken in herself. Oftentimes she can be vilified herself. Mm. And so I think because this country can't even tell the truth about itself, how is it going to honour and recognise black lives, particularly those of black women and children? And this goes back to the reactive abuse you were talking about before the podcast. So a black um, woman will resist. We all might resist. So I'm speaking as a victim survivor of violence myself. Some people might choose to resist and that might be physical. And so what occurs then is, for example, someone's called police, police rock up, the person that's used resistant violence, you know, might just absolutely off the planet, you know, crying, stressed, panicked, outraged. The person who has been attacked in that incident could be really calm. Mm. Or the people that have been attacked in that incident can be really calm, right? And so once again, we have police being a first responder they rock up and they'll make these oftentimes really basic straight out of the dominator culture stereotypical assumptions about the incident that they've attended and then once again by the systems the person that is actually been resisting the violence and is the true victim survivor is once again harmed you know we're really only focused on the community that we sense is the global majority Mm. which is white and we're not. White people are in the global yeah. minority. Yeah. It, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We forget that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't really hear a lot about how to have the conversation with someone who, need, who needs a talking to. Um, yeah. So, yeah. for example, there's, a, there's some people, what I notice is that when their friends identified as um, a perpetrator, mm-hmm. the friends will cancel the man yeah so they'll just ignore the person or cut them out of their life yeah but they don't really have the conversation that will really because you know the perpetrator needs some kind of support in order to see the light so to speak yeah we don't often think of it that way we have a black and white kind of thinking where we say uh, that's a bad person and only bad people do that and it can really make it harder to believe victims when you have a, a friend who you label as a good person you don't really think that they can do something like that we, mm-hmm. we kind of got to get rid of that absolutely yeah the only nice nice men don't do that kind of thing exactly yeah you know I totally get how seductive it is 
to be like, F that person, they did this, never talking to them again. Mm. I get it. And for some people, particularly friends of people that have been harmed or chosen Mm. family of people that have been harmed, totally get it. That's each person's prerogative. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But what I'd invite you to do mm-hmm. is to consider when we completely cut someone off from our communities or our circles, right, and we go, that's it, you did the bad thing and we don't want anything to do with you, all of us. Mm. What I want you to think and what I want our listeners to think, Mia, is I'm not obviously not going to ask you to do this, mm-hmm. but imagine if I said to you, hey, let's talk about perhaps one of the worst things you've ever done in your life, yeah? That's kind of the conversation that we expect of people that have enacted harm, Mm. isn't it? And so I think what we need to do is hold nuance intention. Someone could have done horrific things over here, yes, and that they could have done those horrific things to someone that you love. The person has chosen to use the violence. Why? Mm. And so what we want to do as active bystanders, whether it's in our own lives, people on the street, is always have that curious why. I'm wondering if, have you ever had this conversation with someone? Many. Could, could, what's the situation that stands out for you and perhaps you could narrativize that? So there was a dear friend who is in or was in, I should say, a poly relationship and they had three partners. And what I noticed was one of the partners in particular was really kind of becoming quite obsessive and quite controlling over my friend. Mm-hmm. I remember we were all out at a social gathering. This was before the pandemic. I kind of noticed that this partner was getting heated with another one of their partners um, and it was actually to do with my friend. And so it was a really beautiful kind of just picnic in the park celebration. Everyone was having a really great time and then there was this kind of tensioning. Anyway, so I skillfully intervened by kind of coming in and saying, look, you know, I feel as though some of the dynamics at play here today, I just described what I saw, described what I heard, and then I described how that made me feel. And basically putting it out to them and saying, hey, you know, asking them the same thing, like what's actually really happening here? What's at the bottom of this? Why? And then I ended up having a one-on-one following that conversation with the person that was in a sense harming my friend. Mm. Um, And what was really beautiful about that conversation is that particular person who was choosing to use quite controlling, obsessive behaviour felt comfortable to tell me a little bit about why that was for them and the few relationships before that they'd been a part of where they were able to kind of connect those dots and go, hang on, this hasn't been the first time I've done this. Mm. This has kind of emerged in a few of my relationships and now it's really escalated with this one partner of mine. And so what this person then chose to do as, you know, they had a lot of insight at the time was to kind of step back from their relationships for a little while. They actually got a queer therapist which Mm -hmm. worked alongside them, which was fantastic. She was an amazing therapist too. And so what that then did was create a little bit more of a safer relationship structure within those dynamics. Mm -hmm. Eventually my friend friend chose to leave um, one of those relationships was actually was with that person Mm. you know obviously it's not we're not colluding and saying things are okay but if we're not expecting or you know berating someone and wanting to see them walk over the coals in front of us for doing Mm. harm and we can actually kind of engage in radical love and curious conversations with people that aren't punitive and judgmental what is most important is that you understand when to intervene and 
it's not all good. it's not great to be a hero and just go in and do it. Oftentimes, where possible, ask the person that's surviving the harm if that's okay. Because when we go in and just intervene and try and be a hero about it, the wretched, the person that can often cop that retribution is actually the person surviving the violence. That's another thing to be really mindful of. But I think what worked really well in that particular conversation was once again non-punitive, non-judgmental, respect, curiosity support without collusion so you're not going to say yeah they're nuts they deserve this you're going to say I can understand you know that that might have been a trigger for you but how are you going to manage that in future so once again it's about always putting the ball in the court of the person using the violence putting the responsibility at their feet while also kind of walking alongside them as best you can as opposed to excluding them Mm-hmm. Sometimes exclusion needs to happen and I get it and I'm all for it. But if we can find a way to handle things within community, I think that's always the best way forward as well. Mm. You can have two truths. Yes, that's true. Yeah, and it, I like the word curiosity as an approach. It's nice. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Who worries? Um, I thought what are some final words we could have for our listeners in a theme of 16 days so my message for 16 days of activism would be honoring and uplifting the really important narrative and stories surrounding cishet women's survival or resistance of violence and indeed sometimes not survival but what i really want to reiterate here is there's space for absolutely everyone let's not buy into these scarcity politics we are stronger together you know the story is is far wider and more complete mm. than, say, mainstream understandings of violence. Those mainstream understandings are really important. But let's, you know, it's 2022. Let's start talking about the reality of our lives and how important, you know, when we acknowledge that it's not just one story, it's many. Yeah, because everyone deserves to, to be heard. Yes, yeah. we are all worthy. If you'd like to learn more about the research Christina referenced today, I've included the links in the podcast notes, so feel free to have a look at those. And also check out some of the other episodes that are available on the NRCH podcast channel, which you can find on streaming services like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks for listening. See you next time.